The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. Importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo and help your organization move forward in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers and shake up that good old status quo, you're in the right place. Today's buzz, digital natives. If you've never heard of it, stay tuned. We have a lot to talk about. Today's workforce is changing. It is rapidly absorbing a new generation of workers. Who are they? They were raised with personal computers and smartphones and the Internet. That's right. But what does that mean to us in terms of workforce? It means they're not always comfortable with a nine-to-five slot, a shift, as we used to call it. They're not comfortable filling a single box on the org chart. They have different expectations of work. They have different expectations and definitions of what technology is compared to previous what we call demographic cohorts. That's boomers all the way down the line. What do these people want? More importantly, how are they going to shape the topology of your org? Organization. That's a big term, and we'll define that, and the technology landscape of the future. We have a panel of experts. I can hear them in the background getting ready to come on the air. First up, I'm happy to introduce Stephen Dubis. He's a senior product manager at Amazon. And Stephen sent me a quote from Alistair Mitchell. Those of you scratching your head, if you don't know, Mitchell is the co-founder and CEO of Huddle.com, and I'm reading a quote now from Wired. The quote was from an article called The Rise of the Millennial Workforce. Here we go. Alistair Mitchell says, this new wave of people coming through office doors near you are not just tech literate, but they're accustomed to being connected anywhere at any time. They're a generation that cannot recall life before the Internet. They've always had a cell phone. They're not used to constraints, and they're not used to being restricted by an IT department when it comes to using technology. That's a mouthful. Stephen Dubis, welcome. How are you today? Thanks so much. I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me. Interesting quote. How did you come across it? And why don't you relate it to our topic today? We're talking about digital natives in the workforce. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, a big fan of the Wired publication and um, just came across it a while ago and thought it was it was quite poignant because it really describes the combining world of, um, you know, sort of the, the personal technological base that millennials grew up with and then applies it to the professional aspect that you see in the day-to-day lives of millennials and and as you start blending those boundaries, I think you start seeing the blending of the personal and professional aspect of a person's life for this, you know, 80 million plus cohort of new age workers. So I thought it was just a really good description of the future of the workforce for this age demographic. Very interesting. Stephen, let me ask you, what generation do you belong to? Uh, I'm a millennial. I'm a millennial as well. 
You are, my goodness gracious. I, I mean, so we have two millennials on the panel. I didn't ask. I didn't even 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 assume. My goodness gracious. Um, is there anything you would change about Mitchell's quote? Is there anything you would add to it? You know, I, I think that as positive it is, I think there could be some liabilities to it. Uh, I think you see a lot of that, you know, being IT security being all the rage right now. Um, there's definitely concerns that you can have when you start blending your personal and professional world, uh, but I think that this workforce is starting to become um, more dedicated in their career path than I think they're given credit for. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to um, just the technological revolution in general, everything from being on everywhere, from having information at your fingertips to being able to reach out to people around the world. Uh, you know, you look at that from a social standpoint in terms of networking like Facebook, and then you look at that as it's applied to things like Yammer or LinkedIn. Uh, and, and I actually think a, it's a good thing in those in that respect. Uh, millennials, you know, you seem to find two parts. There's ones that want to be completely disconnected from the office, and then you'll have those that want to be integrated to where they're on all the time, but then they're also free and autonomous all the time. So kind of depends on which camp you sit in. Uh, I sit more in the latter, and uh, I see that as a, as a major positive for our coming generation. Thank you very much, Stephen. Good to know. I did not know you were a millennial, but I know our second guest is. I'm proud to introduce Kin Demery. She's the director of talent at Axiom Zen. We'll find out a little more about her company later. And Kin quoted a T-shirt that she saw in Hawaii, which happens to be near and dear to her, I believe. And the quote is, don't worry, be happy. H-A-P-A, which is a Hawaiian word for mixed ethnicity. Kin Demeray, our second millennial on the show today. Boy, that puts pressure on the third panelist coming up in a minute. Kin, welcome. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So talk to me. Why is this T-shirt so important to you, and how does it relate to our topic about digital natives? You are very right. It definitely is near and dear to me. Um, So I am Hapa myself. Um, I'm half Asian, and it's typically associated with Hapa Haoli in Hawaii. Um, I'm also a millennial, and about 20% of millennials have at least one immigrant parent, as do I. And so it's definitely a topic um, that's related to millennials. In fact, my mother is a professor, and she teaches a class called Interracial Dating. It's so common today, the multicultural aspect of interracial dating. Um, Kip Fulbrecht is actually a UC Santa Barbara professor, and he wrote a book called 100% Mixed. Um, and he also did something called the Hopper Project, where he included photos of 1,200 volunteers who self-identified as HAPA. Most of them were millennials as well. Wow, I didn't realize that 20% of millennials had uh, mixed heritage. Very, very interesting. What, what, to what do you attribute that, or what does the research say, Ken? Any interest, any uh, information on that? Um, yeah, so I guess um, I'm from a small town in Minnesota where I didn't realize how common it was. I was the only minority in my whole school. And so now I live in San Jose, you know, near San Francisco. It's still metropolitan. And it's definitely very common to have mixed ethnicity here. So I wish I embraced that heritage uh, when I was much younger um, instead of being singled out for it. And so now I I definitely do that. Um, And I feel more at home in Hawaii where so many people, the majority of people there are actually mixed ethnicity. Now you're a woman of the bigger world, right? No longer just from Minnesota. But Kim, I have to, Kim, I have to ask you, and I have to spell your name so everybody knows. Beautiful spelling. K-I-N-H, like Kim, but Kin, and the H is silent. And there, you can all figure that one out. Kin, any comments on the quote from Alastair Mitchell that Stephen Dubas shared with us about millennials cutting their teeth on the Internet, always connected, cell phones, uh, not wanting to be constrained by IT rules and regs? Any thoughts on that? I think that is very true. Um, I definitely agree with it myself, and I think it is a double-edged sword. 
you know, so many benefits of companies today are that you're given a smartphone or a tablet, and with that is the expectation that you do answer emails after work hours. And so it definitely um, cuts into work-life balance, but a lot of people prefer that. They want to be connected. They really do care about their jobs. But for other people, um, maybe they aren't so comfortable with it. So I think a lot of it is just setting those expectations with your team and letting them know if it is really important. Maybe you won't be checking your emails, but you will be available for phone calls. Interesting. I remember... I'm actually calling yeah. you on vacation right now, so it is really Oh, <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing your vacation with us. I was going to no. say, years ago, I remember being in meetings where somebody reported, oh, this is about 10 years ago at a board I sit on, a, a board of directors, and um, I remember somebody made a comment. I got an email from Bob. It was stamped 2.45 in the morning. What kind of a terrible life does Bob lead that he's on his computer at 2.45 in the morning sending me an email? What's going I mean, people were just outraged because they couldn't fathom that anybody would want to do that in the middle of the night. And now who looks at timestamps anymore other than if it's a legal issue, right? We're all just – and at one point I want to bring up for, for both Stephen and Ken is that uh, we have that an ongoing debate on work-life balance, but I was informed in a webinar I attended at SAP a couple of years ago that balance is no longer the operative word. It's integration. You're going to be connected one way or another, probably 24-7, but how do you integrate that into your defined and chosen lifestyle? So we can talk about more later. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you for sharing your vacation with us. I hope we make this a good part of your vacation. And now let me bring on our third panelist. It's Chris Mark. He's an executive director of design and user experience at SAP. And Chris sent me a very interesting quote from the late David Frost. Those of you who are millennials might not even know who that is. He was an English journalist, a comedian, a writer, a media personality, a TV host, and uh, very, very Brit. And here's the quote. Don't aim for success if you want it. Just do what you love and believe in, and it will come naturally. Beautiful quote. Chris Mark, welcome. How are you today? Thanks, Bonnie. I'm, I'm doing great. Although I have to say I'm starting to feel a little bit old since I'm not a millennial. <laughs> uh, I'm more, more Generation X, which used to feel young, but uh, more and more now as I hear these stories, I'm, I'm starting to rethink things. <laughs> Talk to me about this quote. How come you picked the David Frost quote? I love it. You know, David Frost, as you're saying, is a really interesting person. Uh, you know, he had a lot of different um, professions in some ways. So, uh, you know, I was attracted to some of the things he was involved in and saying, and perhaps he's best known for, for his work uh, interviewing Richard Nixon years and years ago and right. being very hard-headed in, in how he approached that. But at the same time, he was known as a comedian and, um, and also had some pretty um, profound and insightful statements about um, – what uh, leads to success, what, um, what's important to people. And I think, you know, in some ways it's interesting to me now also that what he was saying 30 years ago is pretty similar and has some um, common elements with the two quotes we heard earlier, which are much more recent. And for me, that's a lot around this idea now that's, that's increasingly visible about not forcing success or not forcing people down a, a predefined path, but rather exploring um, new potential avenues and, and being guided more by um, something you believe in, um, some, a, a greater good in some ways. Uh, you know, that, that can be defined in, in many different respects, but this idea of, of focusing on what you believe in is something that I think we see more and more uh, and, and being more important uh, in the workforce today 
Um, and so I, I, I like this idea that people were talking about it not just last week, but uh, two or three decades ago as well. Very interesting. Chris, it seems to me that that's a big challenge for companies. The bigger the company, the bigger the challenge when you have a huge workforce and you've got this idea that let people do what comes naturally and follow their their heart and follow their beliefs. And you have this huge influx of millennials like Stephen and Ken into the workforce. How do you keep the company on track, on target? You still have to pay the bills. You still have to talk to shareholders, right, Chris? You still have to do the business of being in business. And it's wonderful to say, oh, this is great, everybody here loves what they do, and they're all following their dreams, but how do you put that together with a business plan? Any any insights on that, Chris? A reality check, I'll call it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's an important <laughs> reality check. I mean, in many ways, it comes back to the point about people wanting to uh, work for something they believe in, as I just said, but it's about what's the, the mission of the company, what's the mission of the organization. Now, people have been talking about mission statements and and the purpose of a company also for for many, many years. In some ways, it goes back to classic business strategy. But what we're seeing now is important to to revisit it, to call it out, to make sure it's clear, um, not to leave it to um, uh, slogans and and, easy posters put on the wall, but to to really Mm -hmm. make sure that every employee in the company sees what's the the overall objective, what, what people are working for, but also how their efforts add into that. And so it's, you know, the, one of the challenges, of course, it, particularly in large organizations, is that not every initiative can be the most important thing. And so it, this is not to say that we need to make it clear to everybody that what they're doing is the most important, but to make it clear that they can see how the different pieces fit together. So within my organization, there are some elements that are working on, call it the, the next generation, the, the, the new, new things. There are other parts of the organization um, that, are, that are working on maintaining and extending uh, and continue to deliver uh, existing products and, and services. You know, both groups are equally critical, uh, and it's just important that, that both groups have equal clarity on, on what they're doing and why and how it matters. And when we see that that's brought forward, um, we see that the, the level of engagement, the level of commitment sort of matches. So it's, it's not about the, the old versus the new and one being better than the other. It's more a matter mm-hmm. of people understanding the, the way their, their company is moving forward. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. I'm going to circle back to Stephen Dubas, one of our two millennials. I have to stop saying that because Chris is just going to get a complex by the end of the show. <laughs> and by the way, kids, I'm a, I'm a boomer. I'm an almost uh, almost leading edge. I didn't say bleeding edge, almost leading edge boomer. So I'm just very intrigued by all this, of course. And we're all here in the workforce together, aren't we? So I'm going to circle back to Stephen Dubas and ask a very important question to our show. Stephen, what are you drinking right now? What's in your cup today? Or what would you like to tell us has something to do with your lifestyle that you're going to be drinking after the show. Talk to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. When I was um, when I was in grad school, uh, there was a class called Coffee College uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was bored on a Saturday, so I decided to swing by and pick it up. And, and I got to try a bunch of different types of coffees, different methods of making coffee, different types of beans, geographies, and all that. Uh, and I didn't know the first thing about coffees or teas. You know, it was very much get up in the morning and rush out the door and hit class or go to work. And uh, I learned that my favorite drink in the morning is actually a French, 
press. Uh, no particular bean, no particular geography. I'm not that sophisticated. Uh, my palate isn't that advanced, but I enjoy uh, a stronger coffee, and uh, it kind of gives me um, something to do, uh, a process in the morning to get up, ground myself, and get going in the day, and also a reason to wake up a little bit earlier. So every morning I grab a, a French press out of the kitchen. Very nice. And do you have a favorite flavor anyway within that French press world? Is there a certain bean that's on your top ten list or top two list? You know, honestly, there really isn't. Uh, I'm huh. more in the camp of trying a variety of things. So every couple of weeks when I, uh, you know, pick up the grinder and pick up some beans, I, I actually try new blends, uh, new geographies. haven't found one that I'm willing to stick with yet, so uh, I just keep on trying. Maybe one day I will. Well, thank you. That tells us a lot about you, too. You're, you're an experiment. You're a work in progress. There you go, Stephen. Now you, now you know who you really are. Ken Demery, talk to me. What are you drinking or what are you planning to drink after the show? Sure. Um, I would love to get myself my hands on some camel milk. Um, so I'm a pretty experienced traveler, and I went to Qatar, um, which is in the Gulf, and had what mm-hmm. I thought at the time was tea. I was invited to drink with some Bedouins who are basically nomads in the desert. Mm-hmm. and um, sat down and, and drank some hot beverage with them. Later found out that it was actually camel milk that I was drinking. Um, Whoa. It became, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, the flavor was, was warm um, with some kind of um, ingredients. I don't know what kind of herbs they were using, but it was amazing, and ever since then it's been my favorite drink. So when I get back home to California, I will probably get some uh, camel milk. There's a company in L.A. now that has fresh camel milk a desert farms, and um, they actually package it so you can get the raw camel milk, um, which wow. is a superfood now that helps with diabetes, autism, food allergies, and so on. But it's Ken, you have the honor of introducing a new concept in beverage here on the show. I think I've spoken to over a 1,000 people or more here on three years of SAP Radio on 15 different series, and this is the first, the absolute first time we've heard camel milk. Thank you. I, I knew I could count on you for some unique insights. I appreciate it. What is it? Is it sweet? Is it milky? What Do you put anything in it? You said some spices and herbs. What goes in it? Yeah, traditionally the Bedouins put in some herbs and they drink it warm. Um, but it's becoming much more mainstream now. Like the mall in Dubai actually has a camel milk cafe with camel milk shakes and camel milk chocolate. You can actually buy it in the Dubai airport. So um, it's actually less fat than, than cow milk, so it's not so yellow, um, but it does have a bit of a salty taste. So if you want to sweeten it, you can put you know, the normal milkshake flavors and you wouldn't know the difference, but it's supposed to be really healthy. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. That's interesting. <laughs> I think that's I knew, my goodness gracious. And Chris Mark, I, I certainly can't say can you top either of those, Chris. I'm just going to say, Chris, what are you drinking? Tell me something that's indicative of who Chris Mark is. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm in the same boat as uh, Stephen staring at a, a big cup of black, black coffee. Um, and I'd love to say that, that there's um, something uh, special to it. The, the unfortunate truth, it's a, it's a function of... Um, many years ago working a, a job on the night shift uh, in Hong Kong. And the only thing that got me through those nights was uh, stop in a break room where they had a, a large can of unknown uh, instant coffee and uh, an electric kettle. And so the, you know, that, um, that very pedestrian version of coffee somehow got me through those nights. And now, you know, many years later, it's still the thing that's getting me up uh, early in the morning or keeping me up late at night. So the Black coffee is, is the thing that you'll most often see on my desk. 
Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that, too. And guess what? We're going to take our first break. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here speaking with Stephen Dubis at Amazon, Kin Demery at Axiom Zen, and Chris Mark at SAP. Our topic today, in case you haven't guessed, yes, we're talking about digital natives in the workforce, but a lot more. We're going to learn a lot about who millennials really are. We have two representing on the panel here. And our formal topic today is Great Expectations, Meeting the Demands of a New Wave of Workers. Interesting topic because because we're talking about meeting the demands, because that means they have demands, and I think we'd better listen up. So we'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as more digitally demanding employees, customers, and partners, an increasing variety of digital devices, resource scarcity coupled with data abundance, and extensive business networks and complex supply chains. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Digital World with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Digital World with Game Changers. Here we are. And speaking of Twitter, I'm right now at hashtag SAP Radio, our favorite place to be when we're on the air and before and after. And I'm looking at a very interesting cup with no handles here. It looks a little bit like an Asian design cup with some beautiful flowers in a picture posted by Mark Labez from SAP, who helped me put together this wonderful panel for today's show. And Mark says, two votes for coffee, one for camel milk. What's in your cup? Wait, camel milk? So anybody wants to go, I've already retweeted it. You can go and find it at hashtag SAP. SAP Radio, and we'd love to see more people tweeting with us today. So thank you, Mark. We're going to kick off our roundtable now. I'm going to give the opening honors to Stephen Dubis at Amazon. Stephen, uh, you sent me some notes before the show, some interesting demographics, and let's level set here. You say, born between 1982 and 1993, the 80 million strong millennials, larger than any other generation, that's interesting, will make up 75% of the workforce by 2030, which is only 15 years from now. And you say at some companies such as Ernst & Young, millennials already make up 60% of the workforce. Is that true, Stephen? That sounds like a huge number. Talk to me. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive. And I was surprised when I came across that in the, the Bentley KRC research article. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like we've been talking about millennials coming into the workforce for years now, um, and that target's now within sight. You know, that 2030 is only 15 years away, and you look at some of the more progressive, more sophisticated companies out there, and they're already getting closer to what that target is. Um, and I think it's a combination of, you know, smart 
big companies know that there's a wave of technology in all aspects, in every industry. You know, I'm sure that you've heard in another panel that every company, every industry is now a technology-based company or technology-based industry, that you have to leverage these exponential features and gains that you can get through technology. And if you want to do that, you really need to attract the talent that knows how to implement that as well as use technology. Um, and you look at companies like Ernst & Young or you look at companies like Amazon or like Facebook, um, you know, a lot of the more industry-leading companies are going after this generation in a way that the mass market isn't. Um, and it's impressive to hear that a company like e is already at 60%, because once you kind of ground these millennials in your company, um, I feel like there needs to be a, a shakeup of the stereotype of these type of workers. You know, one of the articles that I mentioned that I sent over to you was that uh, in the KRC research article that Family University put out, uh, 80% of millennials surveyed said they um, they work for four or fewer companies during their careers, and that about 40% expected to stay in their current position for three to five years. So, you know, these millennials, these aren't the people that have always been expected to job hop. You know, these people want to stay with an organization, with a mission for as long as possible, as long as suits them. And if you can get some top talent in the millennial demographic in your company um, before, you know, the mass wave hits, I think that's really important and really powerful for companies that want to change their industry before the industry changes them. Very interesting. I'm, I'm looking at some of your research notes here, Stephen, and I see that 16% say they'll stay with their current employer for the rest of their careers. This goes back to uh, an old song I've quoted on the radio before from Tennessee Ernie Ford. I know that Stephen and Ken were certainly not alive way back then, and I was a little girl when I heard it, but the song was 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Uh, St. Peter, don't you call me because I won't come. I owe my soul to the company store. It was about the mining industry, but he was basically saying, I'm here. This is it. One job. That's my career. Duh. And I'm really surprised to see this research. Do you believe this, Stephen, that 16% are going to stay for an entire career with one employer? It just seems so, pardon me, old-fashioned. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, that, that point in particular was a little shocking to me. Um, but it, Totally. The, the type of work that this generation wants to do, and it's weird saying this generation being a part of it, but um, you know, the Dell think tank that Lauren Berger put together a year ago um, came up with some interesting findings that I think supported those types of statistics. Um, you know, the most important attributes that came out of their millennial research was, you know, they wanted ownership in their job. Um, they value experiences, that busy isn't cool, um, that options are very important to them, and, and flexibility is key in a job. So, you know, those type of attributes that they're looking for in their career and in the specific company that they work for as opposed to fame and money and et cetera, that's, that's pretty powerful. And I think that lends itself to those types of statistics wanting to stay around at companies, not wanting to have the job hop. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the job hopping that millennials get stereotyped with was due to the economy that they walked into. Uh, I was uh, a graduate of class of 2008, but I got out in 2007 a little early. And you know, I walked right into the depths of the recession, and, you know, I had friends that would jump every six months, every year and a half, not because they wanted to, just because companies were falling apart or they were downsizing, uh, et cetera. Um, it was an interesting time, and I think that stereotype, along with the, um, you know, the impression that the recession left on the workforce in general really reinforced that. Um, but as things have improved and things have turned around, especially over the past couple of years, 
you know, I see more people in my generation wanting to stick with one organization or wanting to stay in one particular field and specialize and be committed to a mission or a vision that supports both their personal and their professional goals. Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for elaborating on that. Ken Demery, I want you to join in and talk on this uh, this topic Stephen brought up, but it's time for you to tell us a little bit about your company, Ken, so why don't you combine those two? Go for it. Go ahead. Sure. Um, so I work for a company called Axiom Zen, and basically we launch products and we build companies. So we've, we've traditionally been focused on modern design, and our engineers have done a lot of web and mobile development, but we're definitely not limited to that. Um, so we've done a lot of consulting work to build companies. We also work on our own products, um, one of which is called Zen Hub, which is a Chrome extension for GitHub. Um, and then we also are an accelerator. So we're located in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I come from the San Francisco office. And we also are part of the Startup Chile program. And so we have a Santiago Chile office. Thank you very much. Talk to me now about these statistics that Stephen was tossing on the table here. Are you surprised? Does these, I, uh, do these make sense to you? Definitely. Like you, I'm very surprised, especially since um, you know, both SAP and Amazon are, are big tech companies. Um, so I'm surprised that the finding is that a lot of people are willing to stay for so long. Granted, Ernst & Young is a little bit different because it's consulting, but um, you know, in Silicon Valley, working for smaller companies, I've found that it's not uncommon for people to stay a year or less. And now mm-hmm. is actually the contract economy where you know, employers don't want to commit to even a year. So sometimes they're doing three or six or nine-month contracts or up to a year with the possibility of extension. And it's no longer a black mark on your resume if you, you know, stay for just a year. Um, so you probably know that a lot of companies have four-year stock vesting dates, and so there's a one-year cliff date. And so if you leave before one year, you don't get any stock. But after one year, it starts prorating after that. So a lot of people are actually willing to job hot, at least in Silicon Valley, after that one-year mark. And that's a great time to start recruiting people. Very, very interesting. Very interesting, uh, Ken. I'm, I'm really surprised. The one-year cliff for being vested is just, it doesn't even compute in my world because it used to be five years. They'd make you stay five years in the old days. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, Ken, before I bring in Chris Mark? Sure. I'd love to add another statistic to that. Um, Please. You know, coming from a recruiting back point, um, I found that employees who stay longer than two years actually um, have less earning potential. So Forbes in June 2014 just released an article that said they actually get paid 50% less over a lifetime if they stay in one job or one company longer than two years. So from an economic standpoint, you know, yeah, maybe you're getting a raise or a longer tenure, but you're not getting market compensation as you would if you job hop. Interesting. Thank you. Chris, Mark, we have a lot of interesting statistics on the table here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would have to say that uh, in some ways I'm not surprised by the statistics, although I understand that they don't match necessarily with the, what would you say, the stereotype of the millennials. Um, and the reason I'm not surprised is because it seems that the, the numbers that, that Stephen was mentioning um, kind of fit with what I would see you know, both within our workforce but also within our partners and customers and so on. You know, in one one element of that, if we take, for instance, this point about 16% saying they would stay with their current employer for the rest of their career, and even knowing perhaps the consequences to long-term salary, as Ken was just talking about, I think that that, that group, you know, albeit relatively small, what that may be pointing toward is this idea of 
people working for something they believe in, which we were just talking about. And, and what you might point to there is a lot of people, even joining a startup in, in Silicon Valley and so on, are joining not just for the economic returns, but they're joining for this idea of building uh, a company that lasts or, or building a service that changes something and so on. This has always been around, but I think it's something that's come up more, and I think people see that as a, a, a potential um, future even more clearly than before. It's not everyone, but there is certainly um, you know, a segment of people both within large companies and within startups that, that are there because they see uh, a chance of something happening long-term. The, the other thing that, that I might um, point out is that you know, some of the realities that we're seeing now about millennials, um, what they're looking for, how they work, actually, if, if you step back, don't look that different than, than some of the other generations um, you see within an organization. Um, you know, the, the idea of um, how they manage time or what they're looking for in terms of leadership or, or management, uh, what's important and what's not, these are, are actually pretty similar to um, older generations, uh, so to speak. Um, and that may be the most surprising thing. And what to me, what that points to is what's really different is not so much their expectations, but the impact of technology um, and on, in the workforce, and in particular, their fluency around that. Uh, we, we've already touched on this, and I'm sure we'll come back to it uh, in this conversation. But what I'm getting at is this idea of um, not so much their expectations changing, but that they are changing the way work is done. Um, so mm -hmm. this means operating faster. It means looking at uh, problems completely differently. And to me, that's the most um, surprising and the newest thing that, that's beginning to emerge. And it's uh, a, really a new way of working. Very interesting point. And that's going to be a perfect segue for me to pick up some notes from Kim Demery's information she sent me before the show. But before I do, Stephen Dubas, since you started this part of our topic, anything you want to wrap up before I move over to Kim's notes? You know, I, I completely agree with, with Chris in terms of how this generation is changing how we work. Um, and the thing that comes to mind is agility. Um, you know, this workforce is, is incredibly nimble, and not just in terms of their capabilities, but I think what is equally as important is their mindset and how comfortable they are with a bit of uncertainty. And, again, whether that's groomed through the economy over the past, 10 years or so, or whether it's due to technological innovation, whether it's due to being open nonstop, whether it's, you know, being able to interact with people of different races and cultures around the world, um, you know, sort of the, the blending of um, the blending of the planet for workforce. I think it, a lot of those things just feed into the mindset that millennials have and their ability to accept people of different backgrounds, people with different skills, being able to attempt different types of work. Um, being able to take risks in terms of maybe um, forming a startup or joining a board at a young age or working for a company that may be out of their comfort zone. Uh, I feel like the mindset is equally as important in terms of their actual faculties or their ability to get work done. 
Thank you very much, Stephen. And again, that, that helps me with my perfect segue to Kim. I'm looking at your notes, Kim. And here's, I don't think we've covered this. We've come up to the edge of this topic, but we haven't said it specifically or explicitly. You say, don't be afraid of failure. Many millennials have entrepreneurial spirit and are looking for work cultures that accept failure as part of the innovation and learning process. And then you add, Axiom Zen, your company, would definitely hire entrepreneurs whose startups failed. Nothing to be ashamed of 90% of startups fail. Valuable lessons are learned along the way. Wow, that's a, a wallop of a statement. Ken, talk to me. Very interesting. Is this something that all millennials are looking for, that opportunity to, as some people say, fail fast and fail often? Or, or how ingrained is it in the millennial work culture? Yeah, so I definitely agree that there are different types of millennials. Um, I actually come from the first generation of millennials, and I think um, they're a little bit like the Gen X generation. Um, they're closer in age, you know, they're, they have more characteristics like that, but there are definitely people that are more um, risk, willing to take risk, um, and they're the people that are less likely to go to business school, they're more entrepreneurial. Maybe they'll drop out of college or they'll take a gap year, or even if they do have a bachelor's degree, they'll go to a coding school because they realize technology is the future and they don't want to waste another four years getting another, you know, degree. Um, so there are definitely different types of people, but um, they definitely agree with that. Okay, Chris, Mark, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think um, you know we're all getting to this idea of the you know the um, the mindset being different, um, and you know, that's based a little bit on experience, but it's also you know in some ways opening people's eyes to to see things differently, to to see uh, career paths from a different perspective, to combine things in, in new ways. Um, you know, whether it's I, for instance, I was just speaking with somebody who had a, a traditional finance background but was very, very focused now on, on marketing and, and branding. Uh, we see this also in, in design um, where you're, we're hiring people both you know, with a business background who become interested in design and design thinking, but also the other way around, uh, who start in design but then you know, take that and try to extend that to, to bring in more of a business component to it, and that's what, really what comes you know, in, in a startup and um, mindset and startup uh, opportunity. So I think, you know, it's this blending of different uh, interests, blending of different skills uh, that's beginning to, to reshape things. Thank you. Stephen Dubis, thoughts? Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more, actually. I've been fortunate enough to work for both a successful startup and then also some major Fortune 100 companies. And even from the corporate standpoint, um, from the more advanced especially the IT-backed companies, it's, it's true that failure is becoming less and less stigmatized. Um, mm -hmm. So here at Amazon, and I worked at, at Google as well, iteration is huge within these two companies, uh, particularly at Amazon. And one of the reasons why I love working here is that you're able to take big bets um, and you're still held accountable, but you're not going to be pushed to the back of the room if something fails. Um, now, there there's a ton of due diligence that an individual has to do, especially on the product side here at Amazon, to propose a bet and then start building it. Um, but if it does fail, it's not as if you personally failed. It was you took an educated risk. 
Um, mm-hmm. And if it didn't work out, that's all right. Uh, maybe we can repurpose it, or if we can't, at least we learned something from it and we can go after something else. Um, and that's and that's really impressive to see a company that I think we're up to 150,000 employees or so, you know, around the world in everything from hard products to digital products to services. I mean, the only way that we diversified our product portfolio is by constantly taking these small risks. Um, and failing a ton, right? Failing a ton. Amazon mm-hmm. has failed in so many different respects, but if you look at all the aspects that we succeeded in, we've changed multiple industries, and that's just because of a different mindset that a huge Fortune 50 company allows their product management team to take risks, which uh, I really appreciate in the corporate world. Yeah, I, I think more and more people do. I think it would have been a relief to those of us in my generation to have that opportunity to to fail with the blessing that we tried. We made educated risk-taking something that was acceptable, and then we regrouped and so, saw what we could do with it. Very interesting. It would have been a, certainly an easier way to work, I think, or more fun over the years. Chris Mark, I'm looking at your notes. Some very interesting things jump out at me I don't think we've covered yet. Uh, You say millennials have multiple, sometimes contradictory or unexpected interests and capabilities. The New York Times has called this the slash dynamic. Why don't you expand this for us? What is the slash dynamic, Chris? Mm, Okay. I'm glad you picked up on that. I was actually just thinking of that um, as we're talking about risk and failing Mm because in some ways I think it's this um, idea of, of a slash dynamic or call it multi-dimensional capabilities or experience that we're talking about, and I'll I'll come back to that, that Mm -hmm. makes the idea of failing fast, failing often in order to learn a more um, sustainable model. Meaning, and what what I mean by that is that what you're seeing now is um, smarter bets. I think you you said exactly that same word. It doesn't mean that everything works, but it means Mm -hmm. that um, the – the – the new innovations, the new opportunities, the new services that we're beginning to explore now, we're looking at from different angles. Um, and it, in the same way that a, um, a diversified portfolio from a financial perspective lowers risk, um, a diversified set of capabilities on a team or within a, an individual also lowers the risk uh, that you might take in, in exploring a new concept, seeing if it can develop into a new product or a new service or a new business and so on. So that, that to me is, is a really important component of both how companies are operating, but also how people are working. And what it gets back to is this um, this idea of a of a slash dynamic. I, there was an article in the New York Times about a year ago referring to it, and it it means um, someone, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, who has multiple, sometimes contradictory uh, interests or skill sets. So this could be, as I said, somebody who uh, is an accountant by training but is focused on branding. It could also be uh, somebody who um, is working in an office by day but then um, runs a, a, a high-end food truck on the weekends. Um, somebody who is um, focusing on, on teaching, for instance, but then also works at a nonprofit and, and sings in a band. You know, mm-hmm. but I think maybe the, the most uh, or maybe one of the best examples of this uh, I saw uh, came you know years ago. I was working for a management consulting company uh, in uh, in New York City. Uh, you know this firm, like the other top firms, you know, hires people straight out of business school with your classic um, um, highly um, stress tested B school mm-hmm. training, accounting, finance, marketing, and so on. All focused on strategy, working with 
the biggest companies on the planet. And so in some ways you expect these people to all kind of look and act the same. There was somebody who in the office would send around notes every now and then saying, I'm going to be singing at a club tonight, uh, please come by. Or somebody else would mention on Monday morning that they, um, that they had seen John sing and it was really great. You know, eventually this guy left uh, the job consulting, you know, and it was a very, at that point, you know, one of the prime jobs in, in New York. Um, and he said he was going to sing full-time. That guy was John Legend, you know, and so you see him oh. now at the, the Grammys and, <laughs> and everywhere yes. else. Duh. And, you know, so the, the, you know, the idea that John Legend, you know, is a great singer, but he's also a highly trained, you know, MBA and could literally stop singing and go right back into high-end management consulting is, is pretty interesting, but it's not, um, it's, you know, it's not the only case like that. And um, mm-hmm. I'd be willing to bet that we'll, we'll see that more and more as people are exposed to new things, but also given the freedom to, to explore those and combine those in different ways. Thank you very much. Uh, interesting. I had read that he was an MBA and that he had a corporate career before he made it big time in music. And I, I just love watching him when he sings. He's just, there's something intense and something so professional and sincere about him. Uh, he's, he's the real deal on so many levels. Thank you, Chris. Chris, I'm looking at an interesting article here on SAP Business Trends called Design for Millennials. You wrote this on February 18th this year, about eight weeks ago. And there's just a charming little story. I think it's charming anyway, uh, about a conversation you had with your first encounter with a digital native in the workplace. You want to share that story that has the G word Google in it? Google it. Can you just uh, share, a, share a brief version? I think the listeners would really appreciate it and, and so would Ken and Stephen. Go ahead, Chris. Sure. Yeah, when I, when I wrote that, I, I worried for a little bit that that story would date me, but then I just realized in this conversation, I already did that when I said I was Gen X versus the, the millennials <laughs> here. But the, um, the thing that struck me as I was trying to think about um, this topic, the, the same one a few months ago in writing that piece, was um, it, it was an interview with, with a new candidate uh, to work in our company. And at that point, I was working in our corporate strategy group, which was doing many of the things I just said. We were looking at mergers and acquisitions. We were looking at our company, um, how we can grow, what we need to improve or do better, and so on. And so when we would interview candidates, we would, uh, in addition to just checking their, their fit, we would often try to give them some ways, some tests, just to understand how they're thinking. And we would usually try to find some some test or, or case study that would be different so that they would have to um, think on the fly about it. So with, with one candidate um, who had mentioned that he had, had never been skiing and never been to the mountains, had always focused on, on the beach and so on, I asked him to, you know, how he would come up with an estimate for the, um, the annual market for snow skis or alpine skis mm-hmm. um, worldwide. And so I expected him, based on his education and uh, his credentials, to do what um, everybody else would do or all other successful candidates do, and that would basically just to, to make some assumptions, um, even not knowing the market. He would assume you know, a certain percentage of the world population being skiers at a certain percentage of that, having to buy new skis each year, and then a, and then a certain percentage in terms of um, where things would be sold, whether they're new and replacement and price points and so on, and just work through that. Uh, and instead, he looked at me a little confused, and he said, well, I, I just Google it. And then I got confused, and I said, um, <laughs> what if you couldn't Google it? 
OMG, you You said what? You said what, Chris Mark? (laughs) What if you couldn't Google it? Stop the world right now. Go ahead, continue. Exactly. So then he got even more confused and said, what do you mean? Why couldn't I Google it? (laughs) So at that point, I got frustrated and I thought, all right, this is crazy. It's never going to work. You can't just Google every answer. But it was after that that I realized he actually had a point. And the point wasn't, and I don't think he was necessarily even trying to make it, but the what he was pointing at was, again, a, 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 a different expectation and, and, a, uh, and a willingness to, um, in some ways, outsource some of the thinking or to focus on a, a different problem, so to speak. It reminded me a little bit about um, an interviewer for Albert Einstein once, who at the end of the interview asked him for his phone number, and Einstein had to pull out the phone book and look it up. And the interviewer said, I, I can't believe this. Einstein doesn't even know his own phone number. And he looked at him and said, apparently, you know, why should I bother remembering it when I just know where to look it up? And, you know, this, this point about Google sort of got right back to that a little bit, about there are things that we can rely on in different ways. Believe that he's on his computer at 2.45 in the morning sending me an email. What's going I mean, people were just outraged because they couldn't fathom that anybody would want to do that in the middle of the night. And now who looks at timestamps anymore other than if it's a legal issue, right? We're all just, and at one point I want to bring up for, for both Stephen and Ken is that uh, we have that an ongoing debate on work-life balance, but I was informed in a webinar I attended at SAP a couple of years ago that balance is no longer the operative word. It's integration. You're going to be connected one way or another, probably 24-7, but how do you integrate that into your defined and chosen lifestyle so we can talk about more later thank you so much ken thank you for sharing your vacation with us i hope we make this a good part of your vacation and now let me bring on our third panelist it's chris mark he's an executive director of design and user experience at sap and chris sent me a very interesting quote from the late david frost those of you who are millennials might not even know who that is he was an english journalist a comedian a writer a media personality a tv host and uh, very very brit and here's the quote don't aim for success if you want it. Just do what you love and believe in, and it will come naturally. Beautiful quote. Chris Mark, welcome. How are you today? Thanks, Bonnie. I'm, I'm doing great. Although I have to say I'm starting to feel a little bit old since I'm not a millennial. <laughs> uh, I'm more, more Generation X, which used to feel young, but uh, more and more now as I hear these stories, I'm, I'm starting to th- rethink things. <laughs> Talk to me about this quote. How come you picked the David Frost quote? I love it. You know, David Frost, as you're saying, is a really interesting person. Uh, you know, he had a lot of different um, professions in some ways. So, uh, you know, I was attracted to some of the things he was involved in and saying, and perhaps he's best known for, for his work uh, interviewing Richard Nixon years and years ago and right. being very hard-headed in, in how he approached that. But at the same time, he was known as a comedian and, um, and also had some pretty um, profound and insightful statements about um, – what uh, leads to success, what, um, what's important to people. And I think, you know, in some ways it's interesting to me now also that what he was saying 30 years ago is pretty similar and has some um, common elements with the two quotes we heard earlier, which are much more recent. And for me, that's a lot around this idea now that's, that's increasingly visible about not forcing success or not forcing people down a, a predefined path, but rather exploring um, 
new potential avenues and and being guided more by um, something you believe in, um, some a, a greater good in some ways. Uh, you know that, that can be defined in in many different respects. But this idea of of focusing on what you believe in is something that I think we see more and more uh, and, and being more important uh, in the workforce today. Um, and so I, I, I like this idea that people were talking about it not just last week, but uh, two or three decades ago as well. Very interesting. Chris, it, it seems to me that that's a big challenge for companies. The bigger the company, the bigger the challenge when you have a huge workforce and you've got this idea that let people do what comes naturally and follow their, their heart and follow their beliefs. And you have this huge influx of millennials like Stephen and Ken into the workforce. How do you keep the company on track, on target? You still have to pay the bills. You still have to talk to shareholders, right, Chris? You still have to do the business of being in business. And it's wonderful to say, oh, this is great, everybody here loves what they do and they're all following their dreams, but how do you put that together with a business plan? Any any insights on that, Chris? A reality check, I'll call it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's an important <laughs> reality check. I mean, in many ways, it comes back to the point about people wanting to uh, work for something they believe in, as I just said, but it's about what's the, the mission of the company, what's the mission of the organization. Now, people have been talking about mission statements and and the purpose of a company also for for many, many years. In some ways, it goes back to classic business strategy. But what we're seeing now is important to to revisit it, to call it out, to make sure it's clear, um, not to leave it to um, uh, slogans and and, easy posters put on the wall, but to to really Mm -hmm. make sure that every employee in the company sees what's the the overall objective, what, what people are working for, but also how their efforts add into that. And so it's, you know, the, one of the challenges, of course, it, particularly in large organizations, is that not every initiative can be the most important thing. And so it, this is not to say that we need to make it clear to everybody that what they're doing is the most important, but to make it clear that they can see how the different pieces fit together. So within my organization, there are some elements that are working on, call it the, the next generation, the, the, the new, new things. There are other parts of the organization um, that, are, that are working on maintaining and extending uh, and continuing to deliver uh, existing products and, and services. You know, both groups are equally critical, uh, and it's just important that, that both groups have equal clarity on, on what they're doing and why and how it matters. And when we see that that's brought forward, um, we see that the, the level of engagement, the level of commitment sort of matches. So it's, it's not about the, the old versus the new and one being better than the other. It's more a matter mm-hmm. of people understanding the, the way their, their company is moving forward. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. I'm going to circle back to Stephen Dubas, one of our two millennials. I have to stop saying that because Chris is just going to get a complex by the end of the show. <laughs> and by the way, kids, I'm a, I'm a boomer. I'm an almost uh, almost leading edge. I didn't say bleeding edge, almost leading edge boomer. So I'm just very intrigued by all this, of course. And we're all here in the workforce together, aren't we? So I'm going to circle back to Stephen Dubas and ask a very important question to our show. Stephen, what are you drinking right now? What's in your cup today? Or what would you like to tell us has something to do with your lifestyle that you're going to be drinking after the show. Talk to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. When I was um, when I was in grad school, uh, there was a class called Coffee College uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was bored on a Saturday, so I decided to swing by and pick it up and 
and I got to try a bunch of different types of coffees, different methods of making coffee, different types of beans, geographies, and all that. Uh, and I didn't know the first thing about coffees or teas. You know, it was very much get up in the morning and rush out the door and hit class or go to work. And uh, I learned that my favorite drink in the morning is actually a French press. Uh, no particular bean, no particular geography. I'm not that sophisticated. Uh, my palate isn't that advanced, but I enjoy uh, a stronger coffee, and uh, it kind of gives me... Um, something to do, uh, a process in the morning to get up, ground myself, and get going in the day, and also a reason to wake up a little bit earlier. So every morning I grab a, a French press out of the kitchen. Very nice. And do you have a favorite flavor anyway within that French press world? Is there a certain bean that's on your top ten list or top two list? You know, honestly, there really isn't. Uh, I'm huh. more in the camp of trying a variety of things. So every couple of weeks when I, uh, you know, pick up the grinder and pick up some beans, I, I actually try new blends, uh, new geographies. haven't found one that I'm willing to stick with yet, so uh, I just keep on trying. Maybe one day I will. Well, thank you. That tells us a lot about you, too. You're, you're an experiment. You're a work in progress. There you go, Stephen. Now you, now you know who you really are. Ken Demery, talk to me. What are you drinking or what are you planning to drink after the show? Sure. Um, I would love to get myself my hands on some camel milk. Um, so I'm a pretty experienced traveler, and I went to Qatar, um, which is in the Gulf, and had what mm-hmm. I thought at the time was tea. I was invited to drink with some Bedouins who are basically nomads in the desert. Mm-hmm. and um, sat down and, and drank some hot beverage with them. Later found out that it was actually camel milk that I was drinking. Um, Whoa. It became, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, the flavor was, was warm um, with some kind of um, ingredients. I don't know what kind of herbs they were using, but it was amazing, and ever since then it's been my favorite drink. So when I get back home to California, I will probably get some uh, camel milk. There's a company in L.A. now that has fresh camel milk called Desert Farms, and um, they actually package it so you can get the raw camel milk, um, which wow. is a superfood now that helps with diabetes, autism, food allergies, and so on. Ken, you have the honor of introducing a new concept in beverage here on the show. I think I've spoken to over a 1,000 people or more here on three years of SAP Radio on 15 different series, and this is the first, the absolute first time we've heard camel milk. Thank you. I, I knew I could count on you for some unique insights. I pre- and what is, it? is it sweet? Is it milky? What Do you put anything in it? You said some spices and herbs. What goes in it? Yeah, traditionally the Bedouins put in some herbs and they drink it warm. Um, but it's becoming much more mainstream now. Like the mall in Dubai actually has a camel milk cafe with camel milk shakes and camel milk chocolate. You can actually buy it in the Dubai airport. So um, it's actually less fat than, a, than cow milk, so it's not so yellow, um, but it does have a bit of a salty taste. So if you want to sweeten it, you can put you know, the normal milkshake flavors and you wouldn't know the difference, but it's supposed to be really healthy. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. That's interesting. <laughs> I I knew, my goodness gracious. And Chris Mark, I, I certainly can't say can you top either of those, Chris. I'm just going to say, Chris, what are you drinking? Tell me something that's indicative of who Chris Mark is. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm in the same boat as uh, Stephen staring at a, a big cup of black, black coffee. Um, and I'd love to say that, that there's... Um, something uh, special to it. The, the unfortunate truth, it's a, it's a function of um, many years ago working a, a job on the night shift uh, in Hong Kong, and the only thing that got me through those nights was uh, stop in a break room where they had a, a large can of unknown uh, instant coffee and uh, an electric kettle. 
and so that you know that um, that very pedestrian version of coffee somehow got me through those nights, and now you know, many years later, it's still the thing that's getting me up uh, early in the morning or keeping me up late at night. So the black coffee is is the thing that you most often see on my desk. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that, too. And guess what? We're going to take our first break. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here speaking with Stephen Dubis at Amazon, Kin Demery at Axiom Zen, and Chris Mark at SAP. Our topic today, in case you haven't guessed, yes, we're talking about digital natives in the workforce, but a lot more. We're going to learn a lot about who millennials really are. We have two representing on the panel here. And our formal topic today is Great Expectations, Meeting the Demands of a New Wave of Workers. Interesting topic because because we're talking about meeting the demands, because that means they have demands, and I think we'd better listen up. So we'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad, out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated, ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as more digitally demanding employees, customers, and partners, an increasing variety of digital devices, resource scarcity coupled with data abundance, and extensive business networks and complex supply chains. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Digital World with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Digital World with Game Changers. We are, and speaking of Twitter, I'm right now at hashtag SAP Radio, our favorite place to be when we're on the air and before and after. And I'm looking at a very interesting cup with no handles here. It looks a little bit like an Asian design cup with some beautiful flowers in a picture posted by Mark Labez from SAP, who helped me put together this wonderful panel for today's show. And Mark says, two votes for coffee, one for camel milk. What's in your cup? Wait, camel milk? So anybody wants to go, I've already retweeted it. You can go and find it at hashtag SAP. Radio, and we'd love to see more people tweeting with us today. So thank you, Mark. We're going to kick off our roundtable now. I'm going to give the opening honors to Stephen Dubis at Amazon. Stephen, uh, you sent me some notes before the show, some interesting demographics, and let's level set here. You say, born between 1982 and 1993, the 80 million strong millennials, larger than any other generation, that's interesting, will make up 75% of the workforce by 2030, which is only 15 years from now. And you say at some companies such as Ernst & Young, millennials already make up 60% of the workforce. Is that true, Stephen? That sounds like a huge number. Talk to me. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive. And I was surprised when I came across that in the, the Bentley KRC research article. Um, 
you know, it's one of those things where I feel like we've been talking about millennials coming into the workforce for years now, um, and that target's now within sight. You know, that 2030 is only 15 years away. And you look at some of the more progressive, more sophisticated companies out there, and they're already getting closer to what that target is. Um, and I think it's a combination of, you know, smart, big companies know that there's a wave of technology in all aspects, in every industry. You know, I'm sure that you've heard in another panel that every company, every industry is now a technology-based company or technology-based industry, that you have to leverage these exponential features and gains that you can get through technology. And if you want to do that, you really need to attract the talent that knows how to implement that as well as use technology. Um, and you look at companies like Ernst & Young or you look at companies like Amazon or like Facebook, um, you know, a lot of the more industry-leading companies are going after this generation in a way that the mass market isn't. Um, and it's impressive to hear that a company like e is already at 60%, because once you kind of ground these millennials in your company, um, I feel like there needs to be a, a shakeup of the stereotype of these type of workers. You know, one of the articles that I mentioned that I sent over to you was that uh, in the KRC research article that Family University put out, uh, 80% of millennials surveyed said they um, they work for four or fewer companies during their careers, and that about 40% expected to stay in their current position for three to five years. So, you know, these millennials, these aren't the people that have always been expected to job hop. You know, these people want to stay with an organization, with a mission for as long as possible, as long as suits them. And if you can get some top talent in the millennial demographic in your company um, before, you know, the mass wave hits, I think that's really important and really powerful for companies that want to change their industry before the industry changes them. Very interesting. I'm, I'm looking at some of your research notes here, Stephen, and I see that 16% say they'll stay with their current employer for the rest of their careers. This goes back to uh, an old song I've quoted on the radio before from Tennessee Ernie Ford. I know that Stephen and Ken were certainly not alive way back then, and I was a little girl when I heard it, but the song was 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Uh, St. Peter, don't you call me because I won't come. I owe my soul to the company store. It was about the mining industry, but he was basically saying, I'm here. This is it. One job. That's my career. Duh. And I'm really surprised to see this research. Do you believe this, Stephen, that 16% are going to stay for an entire career with one employer? It just seems so, pardon me, old-fashioned. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, that, that point in particular was a little shocking to me. Um, but it, totally. The, the type of work that this generation wants to do, and it's weird saying this generation being a part of it, but um, you know, the Dell think tank that Lauren Berger put together a year ago um, came up with some interesting findings that I think supported those types of statistics. Um, you know, the most important attributes that came out of their millennial research was, you know, they wanted ownership in their job. Um, they value experiences, that busy isn't cool, um, that options are very important to them, and, and flexibility is key in a job. So, you know, those type of attributes that they're looking for in their career and in the specific company that they work for as opposed to fame and money and et cetera, that's, that's pretty powerful. And I think that lends itself to those type of statistics wanting to stay around in companies, not wanting to have to job hop. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the job hopping that millennials get stereotyped with was due to the economy that they walked into. Uh, I was uh, a graduate of class of 2008, but I got out in 2007 a little early. And you know, I walked right into the depths of the recession, and, you know, I had friends that 
would jump every six months, every year and a half, not because they wanted to, just because companies were falling apart or they were downsizing, uh, et cetera. Um, it was an interesting time, and I think that stereotype along with the um, you know, the impression that the recession left on the workforce in general really reinforced that. Um, but as things have improved and things have turned around, especially over the past couple of years, you know, I see more people in my generation wanting to stick with one organization or wanting to stay in one particular field and specialize and be committed to a mission or a vision that supports both their personal and their professional goals. Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for elaborating on that. Ken Demery, I want you to join in and talk on this uh, this topic Stephen brought up, but it's time for you to tell us a little bit about your company, Ken, so why don't you combine those two? Go for it. Go ahead. Sure. Um, so I work for a company called Axiom Zen, and basically we launch products and we build companies. So we've, we've traditionally been focused on modern design, and our engineers have done a lot of web and mobile development, but we're definitely not limited to that. Um, so we've done a lot of consulting work to build companies. We also work on our own products, um, one of which is called Zen Hub, which is a Chrome extension for GitHub. Um, and then we also are an accelerator. So we're located in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I come from the San Francisco office. And we also are part of the Startup Chile program. And so we have a Santiago Chile office. Thank you very much. Talk to me now about these statistics that Stephen was tossing on the table here. Are you surprised? Does these, I, uh, do these make sense to you? Definitely. Like you, I'm very surprised, especially since um, you know, both SAP and Amazon are, are big tech companies. Um, so I'm surprised that the finding is that a lot of people are willing to stay for so long. Granted, Ernst & Young is a little bit different because it's consulting, but um, you know, in Silicon Valley, working for smaller companies, I've found that it's not uncommon for people to stay a year or less. And now mm-hmm. is actually the contract economy where you know, employers don't want to commit to even a year. So sometimes they're doing three or six or nine month contracts or up to a year with the possibility of extension. And it's no longer a black mark on your resume if you, you know, stay for just a year. Um, so you probably know that a lot of companies have four-year stock vesting dates. And so there's a one-year cliff date. And so if you leave before one year, you don't get any stock. But after one year, it starts prorating after that. So a lot of people are actually willing to job hot, at least in Silicon Valley, after that one-year mark. And that's a great time to start recruiting people. Very, very interesting. Very interesting, uh, Ken. I'm, I'm really surprised. The one-year cliff for being vested is just, it doesn't even compute in my world because it used to be five years. They'd make you stay five years in the old days. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, Ken, before I bring in Chris Mark? Sure, I'd love to add another statistic to that. Um, Please. You know, coming from a recruiting back point, um, I found that employees who stay longer than two years actually um, have less earning potential. So Forbes in June 2014 just released an article that said they actually get paid 50% less over a lifetime if they stay in one job or one company longer than two years. So from an economic standpoint, you know, yeah, maybe you're getting a raise or a longer tenure, but you're not getting market compensation as you would if you job hop. Interesting. Thank you. Chris, Mark, we have a lot of interesting statistics on the table here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would have to say that uh, in some ways I'm not surprised by the statistics, although I understand that they don't match necessarily with the, what would you say, the stereotype of the millennials. Uh, and the reason I'm not surprised is because it seems that the, the numbers that, that Stephen was mentioning um, kind of fit with what I would see you know, both within our workforce but also within our partners and customers and so on. You know, in one 
one element of that, if we take, for instance, this point about 16% saying they would stay with their current employer for the rest of their career, and even knowing perhaps the consequences to long-term salary, as Ken was just talking about, I think that that, that group, you know, albeit relatively small, what that may be pointing toward is this idea of people working for something they believe in, which we were just talking about. And, and what you might point to there is a lot of people, even joining a startup in, in Silicon Valley and so on, are joining not just for the economic returns, but they're joining for this idea of building uh, a company that lasts or, or building a service that changes something and so on. This has always been around, but I think it's something that's come up more, and I think people see that as a, a, a potential um, future even more clearly than before. It's not everyone, but there is certainly um, you know, a segment of people both within large companies and within startups that, that are there because they see uh, a chance of something happening long-term. The, the other thing that, that I might um, point out is that you know, some of the realities that we're seeing now about millennials, um, what they're looking for, how they work, Actually, if, if you step back, don't look that different than, than some of the other generations um, you see within an organization. Um, you know, the, the idea of um, how they manage time or what they're looking for in terms of leadership or, or management, uh, what's important and what's not, these are, are actually pretty similar to um, older generations, uh, so to speak. Um, and that may be the most surprising thing. And what to me, what that points to is what's really different is not so much their expectations, but the impact of technology um, and on, in the workforce, and in particular, their fluency around that. Uh, we, we've already touched on this, and I'm sure we'll come back to it uh, in this conversation. But what I'm getting at is this idea of um, not so much their expectations changing, but that they are changing the way work is done. Um, so mm-hmm. this means operating faster. It means looking at uh, problems completely differently. And to me, that's the most um, surprising and the newest thing that, that's beginning to emerge, and it's uh, a, really a new way of working. Very interesting point. That's going to be a perfect segue for me to pick up some notes from Kim Demery's information she sent me before the show. But before I do, Stephen Dubas, since you started this part of our topic, anything you want to wrap up before I move over to Kim's notes? You know, I, I completely agree with, with Chris in terms of how this generation is changing how we work. Um, and the thing that comes to mind is agility. Um, you know, this workforce is is incredibly nimble, and not just in terms of their capabilities, but I think what is equally as important is their mindset and how comfortable they are with a bit of uncertainty. And, again, whether that's groomed through the economy over the past, 10 years or so, or whether it's due to technological innovation, whether it's due to being open nonstop, whether it's, you know, being able to interact with people of different races and cultures around the world, um, you know, sort of the, the blending of um, the blending of the planet for workforce. I think it, a lot of those things just feed into the mindset that millennials have and their ability to accept people of different backgrounds, people with different skills, being able to attempt different types of work, um, being able to take risks in terms of maybe um, forming a startup or joining a board at a young age or working for a company that may be out of their comfort zone. Uh, I feel like the mindset is equally as important in terms of their actual faculties or their ability to get work done. 
Thank you very much, Stephen. And again, that, that helps me with my perfect segue to Kim. I'm looking at your notes, Kim. And here's, I don't think we've covered this. We've come up to the edge of this topic, but we haven't said it specifically or explicitly. You say, don't be afraid of failure. Many millennials have entrepreneurial spirit and are looking for work cultures that accept failure as part of the innovation and learning process. And then you add, Axiom Zen, your company, would definitely hire entrepreneurs whose startups failed. Nothing to be ashamed of. 90% of startups fail. Valuable lessons are learned along the way. Wow, that's a, a wallop of a statement. Ken, talk to me. Very interesting. Is this something that all millennials are looking for, that opportunity to, as some people say, fail fast and fail often? Or, or how ingrained is it in the millennial work culture? Yeah, so I definitely agree that there are different types of millennials. Um, I actually come from the first generation of millennials, and I think um, they're a little bit like the Gen X generation. Um, they're closer in age, you know, they're, they have more characteristics like that, but there are definitely people that are more um, risk, willing to take risk, um, and they're the people that are less likely to go to business school, they're more entrepreneurial. Maybe they'll drop out of college or they'll take a gap year, or even if they do have a bachelor's degree, they'll go to a coding school because they realize technology is the future and they don't want to waste another four years getting another you know, degree. Um, so there are definitely different types of people, but um, they definitely agree with that. Okay, Chris, Mark, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think um, you know we're all getting to this idea of the you know the um, the mindset being different, um, and you know, that's based a little bit on experience, but it's also you know in some ways opening people's eyes to to see things differently, to to see uh, career paths from a different perspective, to combine things in, in new ways. Um, you know, whether it's I, if, for instance, I was just speaking with somebody who had a, a traditional finance background but was very, very focused now on, on marketing and, and branding. Uh, we see this also in, in design um, where you know, we're hiring people both you know, with a business background who become interested in design and design thinking, but also the other way around, uh, who start in design but then you know, take that and try to extend that to, to bring in more of a business component to it, and that's really what comes you know, in, in a startup and um, mindset and startup uh, opportunity. So I think, you know, it's this blending of different uh, interests, blending of different skills uh, that's beginning to, to reshape things. Thank you. Stephen Dubis, thoughts? Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more, actually. I've been fortunate enough to work for both a successful startup and then also some major Fortune 100 companies. And even from the corporate standpoint, um, from the more advanced, especially the IT-backed companies, it's, it's true that failure is becoming less and less stigmatized. Um, mm -hmm. So here at Amazon, and I worked at, at Google as well, iteration is huge within these two companies, uh, particularly at Amazon. And one of the reasons why I love working here is that you're able to take big bets um, and you're still held accountable, but you're not going to be pushed to the back of the room if something fails. Um, now, there, there's a ton of due diligence that an individual has to do, especially on the product side here at Amazon, to propose a bet and then start building it. Um, but if it does fail, it's not as if you personally failed. It was you took an educated risk. 
Um, mm-hmm. And if it didn't work out, that's all right. Um, maybe we can repurpose it, or if we can't, at least we learned something from it and we can go after something else. Um, and that's and that's really impressive to see a company that I think we're up to 150,000 employees or so, you know, around the world in everything from hard products to digital products to services. I mean, the only way that we diversified our product portfolio is by constantly taking these small risks. Um, and failing a ton, right? Failing a ton. Amazon mm-hmm. has failed in so many different respects, but if you look at all the aspects that we succeeded in, we've changed multiple industries, and that's just because of a different mindset that a huge Fortune 50 company allows their product management team to take risks, which uh, I really appreciate in the corporate world. Yeah, I, I think more and more people do. I think it would have been a relief to those of us in my generation to have that opportunity to to fail with the blessing that we tried. We made educated, risk-taking, something that was acceptable, and then we regrouped and saw, saw what we could do with it. Very interesting. It would have been a, certainly an easier way to work, I think, or more fun over the years. Chris Mark, I'm looking at your notes. Some very interesting things jump out at me I don't think we've covered yet. Uh, You say millennials have multiple, sometimes contradictory or unexpected interests and capabilities. The New York Times has called this the slash dynamic. Why don't you expand this for us? What is the slash dynamic, Chris? Mm, Okay. And I'm glad you picked up on that. I was actually just thinking of that um, as we're talking about risk and failing Mm because in some ways I think it's this um, idea of, of a slash dynamic or call it multi-dimensional capabilities or experience that we're talking about, and I'll, I'll come back to that, that mm-hmm. makes the idea of failing fast, failing often in order to learn a more um, sustainable model. Meaning, and what, what I mean by that is that what you're seeing now is um, smarter bets. I think you, you said exactly that same word. It doesn't mean that everything works, but it means mm-hmm. that um, the 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 new innovations, the new opportunities, the new services that we're beginning to explore now, we're looking at from different angles. Um, and it, in the same way that a, um, a diversified portfolio from a financial perspective lowers risk, um, a diversified set of capabilities on a team or within a, an individual also lowers the risk uh, that you might take in, in exploring a new concept, seeing if it can develop into a new product or a new service or a new business and so on. So that, that to me is, is a really important component of both how companies are operating, but also how people are working. And what it gets back to is this um, this idea of a of a slash dynamic. As I said, there was an article in the New York Times about a year ago referring to it, and it it means um, someone, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, who has multiple, sometimes contradictory uh, interests or skill sets. So this could be, as I said, somebody who uh, is an accountant by training but is focused on branding. It could also be uh, somebody who um, is working in an office by day but then um, runs a, a, a high-end food truck on the weekends. Um, somebody who is um, focusing on, on teaching, for instance, but then also works at a nonprofit and, and sings in a band. You know, mm-hmm. but I think maybe the, the most uh, or maybe one of the best examples of this uh, I saw uh, came you know years ago. I was working for a management consulting company uh, in uh, in New York City. Uh, you know this firm, like the other top firms, you know, hires people straight out of business school with your classic um, um, highly um, stress tested B school mm. training, accounting, finance, marketing, and so on. All focused on strategy, working with 
the biggest companies on the planet. And so in some ways you expect these people to all kind of look and act the same. There was somebody who in the office would send around notes every now and then saying, I'm going to be singing at a club tonight, uh, please come by. Or somebody else would mention on Monday morning that they, um, that they had seen John sing and it was really great. You know, eventually this guy left uh, the job consulting, you know, and it was a very, at that point, you know, one of the prime jobs in, in New York. Um, and he said he was going to sing full-time. That guy was John Legend, you know, and so you see him oh. now at the, the Grammys and, <laughs> and everywhere else. Yes. Duh. And, you know, so the, the, you know, the idea that John Legend, you know, is a great singer, but he's also a highly trained, you know, MBA and could literally stop singing and go right back into high-end management consulting is it's pretty interesting, but it's not, um, it's, you know, it's not the only case like that. And um, mm-hmm. I'd be willing to bet that we'll, we'll see that more and more as people are exposed to new things, but also given the freedom to, to explore those and combine those in different ways. Thank you very much. Uh, interesting. I had read that he was an MBA and that he had a corporate career before he made it big time in music. And I, I just love watching him when he sings. He's just, there's something intense and something so professional and sincere about him. Uh, he's, he's the real deal on so many levels. Thank you, Chris. Chris, I'm looking at an interesting article here on SAP Business Trends called Design for Millennials. You wrote this on February 18th this year, about eight weeks ago. And there's just a charming little story. I think it's charming anyway, uh, about a conversation you had with your first encounter with a digital native in the workplace. You want to share that story that has the G word Google in it? Google it. Can you just uh, share, a, share a brief version? I think the listeners would really appreciate it. And, and so would Ken and Stephen. Go ahead, Chris. Sure. Yeah, when I, when I wrote that, I, I worried for a little bit that that story would date me, but then I just realized in this conversation, I already did that when I said I was Gen X versus the, the millennials <laughs> here. But the, um, the thing that struck me as I was trying to think about um, this topic, the, the same one a few months ago in writing that piece, was um, it, it was an interview with, with a new candidate uh, to work in our company. And at that point, I was working in our corporate strategy group, which was doing many of the things I just said. We were looking at mergers and acquisitions. We were looking at our company, um, how we can grow, what we need to improve or do better, and so on. And so when we would interview candidates, we would, uh, in addition to just checking their, their fit, we would often try to give them some ways, some tests, just to understand how they're thinking. And we would usually try to find some, some test or, or case study that would be different so that they would have to um, think on the fly about it. So with, with one candidate um, who had mentioned that he had, had never been skiing and never been to the mountains, had always focused on, on the beach and so on, I asked him to, you know, how he would come up with an estimate for the, um, the annual market for snow skis or alpine skis mm-hmm. um, worldwide. And so I expected him, based on his education and uh, his credentials, to do what um, everybody else would do or all other successful candidates do, and that would basically just to, to make some assumptions, um, even not knowing the market. He would assume you know, a certain percentage of the world population being skiers at a certain percentage of that, having to buy new skis each year, and then a, and then a certain percentage in terms of um, – where things would be sold, whether they're new and replacement and price points and so on, and just work through that. Uh, and instead, he looked at me a little confused, and he said, well, I, I just Google it. And then I got confused, and I said, um, <laughs> what if you couldn't Google it? 
OMG, you said what? You said what, Chris Mark? (laughs) What if you couldn't Google it? Stop the world right now. Go ahead, continue. Exactly. So then he got even more confused and said, what do you mean? Why couldn't I Google it? (laughs) So at that point, I got frustrated and I thought, all right, this is crazy. It's never going to work. You can't just Google every answer. But it was after that that I realized he actually had a point. And the point wasn't, and I don't think he was necessarily even trying to make it, but the what he was pointing at was, again, a, 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 a different expectation and, and, a, uh, and a willingness to, um, in some ways, outsource some of the thinking or to focus on a, a different problem, so to speak. It reminded me a little bit about um, an interviewer for Albert Einstein once, who at the end of the interview asked him for his phone number, and Einstein had to pull out the phone book and look it up. And the interviewer said, I, I can't believe this. Einstein doesn't even know his own phone number. And he looked at him and said, apparently, you know, why should I bother remembering it when I just know where to look it up? And, you know, this, this point about Google sort of got right back to that a little bit, about there are things that we can rely on in different ways. Uh, and, and this is what's now coming into things like um, – you know, how sales operations are managed within companies and, and software such as CRM and others. You know, it used to be that you would just track the, uh, the information, the account name, the potential deal size, and so on. But it's, uh, you know, people asking questions or um, showing assumptions that have changed that and have said, you know, well, why can't we have a CRM system that automatically links to LinkedIn, and I can see their profile and their connections, mm-hmm. or that also um, connects uh, seamlessly to geographic data, so I know how far I am from my next meeting, and so on. So it's things like that that, again, get to the point that, that Stephen was making um, about new ways of working and new processes that are coming from just uh, thinking a little bit differently. And It was that interview that made me realize that this was already happening. Thank you, Chris. Stephen or Akin, anybody want to comment on what Chris just shared with us? Anywhere between uh, Einstein and the, the Google guy, the Google it guy? <laughs> this is Ken. I'd love yeah. to comment. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead, Ken. Um, so, yeah, I think it brings up this whole theme of hacking things. That's typical of our generation, the millennials. So it's coming up with more efficient but non-traditional solutions to things. So if they can think of a better way or a quicker way to do things, then they'll go ahead and do it, even if it's piecemeal or a little bit choppy. Um, and then I'd also love to comment on Chris's slash dynamic comment. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That's something that I see a lot as well. So people may be professionals or have focused on one career, but often they have passion projects that they work on on the side. And I think that that really contributes to diversity of thought, makes people more interesting. In a lot of cases, it makes them more employable because they're, um, you know, they're able to come up with, again, non-traditional solutions. So when I was at Google, we would often look at the history of people. So were they, um, even if they were in a different career, you know, prior to computer science, were they successful at it? Um, one person was a heart surgeon. Um, you know, at Axiom Zen, we do the same thing. We look at trends of being successful, even from an early age. So were they successful in school? Were they really passionate about something on the side that maybe was building an app or something really unrelated to their curriculum that, um, you know, they really excelled at? Um, and then one other point I wanted to make is that uh, at Axiom Zen, we're, doing this lecture series uh, from Y Combinator called How to Start a Startup. And in that, they're talking about you know, all these investors and, and venture capitalists, and they're giving advice to students 
mostly at Stanford, um, and they're talking about kind of backgrounds that, and courses of study that you can take to become a successful entrepreneur or successful startup employee. And the consensus is that there's really no one particular major um, that someone should major in. So traditionally, people thought it was business or they should go to business school. But now they're encouraging people to, you know, think about design or about um, mm-hmm. maybe not even computer science majors to contribute to diversity of thought and really um, be able to be different from the competitors. Thank you, Ken. You know what? We're just about ready to launch into our predictions round, but I have a quick story to share with you, Ken, since you brought it up. Uh, I was doing radio, I've been doing talk radio, just casual interviewing authors, whatever, for almost 20 years. And one of my managers knew that one of my side passions was hosting live radio. And she sent me a proposal three and a half years ago and said, hey, you know something about internet radio. Somebody wants us to sponsor an internet radio business show. Evaluate it for me, Bonnie. You know what this is all about. And I did, and I came back to her and I said, forget sponsoring. Let's start our own radio show, October 2011. And I had the nerve to say, we're going to start Game Changers Radio, and we did. And that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and 15 series ago. And here we are. So I wouldn't be talking to you today here, Ken and Chris and Stephen, if a manager hadn't thought about what my passion was and been aware of what my slash was, which was hosting live talk radio. So there you go. And I'm forever grateful. It was a career changer for me. It's time. Stephen Dubas, I'm giving you 60 seconds exactly. Talk to me about predictions. What would happen if we fast forward this conversation to 2020 or anytime you see clearly in the crystal ball? Stephen Dubas, 60 seconds, go. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough question. And don't hold it to me in 10 years, five years, <laughs> 20 years. But I think, you know, if I was to push it out to maybe 2030, um, I think one thing that is really going to accelerate the millennials in the workforce is the reduction of sort of institutional barriers. So um, the ability for uh, the ability for American workers to get healthcare on a a la carte one-off basis, Um, you know, the sort of generalization of taxes across state lines, the equanimity of networking, professional development, retirement investing, you know, all these major institutional silos that people take jobs or move to locations for, I kind of see them slowly waning over the years. Uh, And again, I don't know if that's in 10 years, if that's in 30 years, but Going back to our initial point and the agility of the millennial workforce and both their their faculties, how they work, but then also their mindset, you know, why they work and and why they move around and the types of jobs that they take, um, this sort of on-demand generation, I feel like, is well-suited for an environment that is a level playing field and doesn't have sort of... um, arbitrary barriers for employment. Um, Again, I don't know when that's going to happen, but I feel like that's the momentum. That's where things are going. And I don't think that you can stop that, whether you're a Fortune 500 or whether you're a state government, whether you're, you know, uh, a a thought leader in professional development, um, whether you're an institution in terms of financials and retirement planning. um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this generation changes the economy over the next 10 to 20 years as opposed to the economy leading the way for this workforce. Thank you, Stephen. We're almost out of time. Ken, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to wrap up your predictions. Go. Ken Demery. So I think it's all about changing the status quo. So traditionally people have been using um, newspapers and older kinds of 
ways of looking for jobs. Now it's moving to mobile, especially internationally, where more people are getting the Internet on their mobile devices. Uh, right now, 66% of job seekers use social media looking for work. 89% are more likely to use a, a mobile phone um, than the web uh, on their computer. Um, and I think another thing is that you're going to see changing policies. So, for instance, Amazon offered their employees two to $5,000 to quit, which they think in the long run is better than having unengaged workers. Zappos offered three-plus months of severance um, for employees that aren't embar- on board with their new holacracy culture. Mm. Um, and then Pinterest just changed their, vest- or their, um, their stock so that you now have seven years to buy your stock options after leaving the company rather than just the traditional three months. So definitely changing the status quo. Thank you, Kin. Chris, Mark, I can give you 30 seconds. Talk to me quick. Predictions. Okay. No, I would fully bet on both things that, that uh, Stephen and, and Ken just said. So I think they're, they're spot on. Um, you know, I think back to something um, somebody uh, important in, in our tech industry said a little while ago, looking out ahead, and he said that, you know, everything that's going to happen in the foreseeable future is already visible meaning that these things are already bubbling up now, and whether they uh, show up in, in five years, 10 years, 15 years, it's, it's still something that you can see if you look closely enough. When I think of that and, and what we're talking about, you know, I, I actually think about my, uh, my youngest kids. I've, I have four-year-old twins. Um, I've sort of gotten too tired of having to hand them my phone so they can, can look at it or play <laughs> with it in the car, so we recently got them both iPods and told them that those, those were their phones. But I see them in the back seat, you know, with the with the iPod, and they use it intuitively. Um, you know, we've we've spoken about you know this already, you know, for for a number of years. But I, I see that I fast forward for them 15 years or 20 years, and I know what's happening in the tech industry. I can see technology being even more um, woven into how people think and how they operate, mm-hmm. and opening up new opportunities. Thank you very much. I remember my granddaughter, my son took a picture when she was three months old, falling asleep with her head on the keyboard on his desk. And that, that was pretty much pretty much the way it was going. What can I tell you? I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very grateful to my three extraordinary guests, Stephen Dubas at Amazon, Ken Demery at Axiom Zen, and Chris Mark at SAP. You've been listening to Digital World with Game Changers. I'll be back a little bit later today with Game Changing Women. You don't want to miss that one. Signing off right now, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.